Welcome everyone as we begin a brand new sermon series entitled Tough as Nails. We are so glad to have you joining us today. Let me just start off though by saying before we get into our conversation, thank you to all of you who made the mega awesome costume party happen for our Wombaland and our Upstreet children. Thank you so much for being involved in that. It was an amazing, an amazing experience. On our Mariana campus, for example, we broke the 200 barrier with children and had so many new families. It was absolutely amazing. And then, man, Chipley, what about you guys? 60 kids. It's time for us to build a new building for you guys. Hey, thanks so much, all of you who participated in that. I just want to thank you for being a church that is for reaching the people in our communities. Just amazing what you guys do to continue to invest in people, to help us fulfill our mission of reaching people for Jesus Christ and leading them into a growing relationship with Jesus. Now, as we begin our series today, I, I want you to think about this thought. Once upon a time, there were no Democrats, there were no Republicans. I, I know for some of us that's really hard to believe. Once upon a time, there wasn't even the United States of America. There wasn't a Constitution or a Bill of Rights or a Declaration of Independence. Once upon a time, there was only Rome, a republic that transitioned into an empire under the leadership of Caesar Augustus. And during his reign, there was this baby born in the city of Bethlehem, in the region of Judea, in the nation of Israel. A nation under Roman rule that constituted nothing more than the armpit of the Roman Empire. And that baby, it would grow up to be more well-known than Caesar Augustus and all the other Roman empires, emperors put together. And he would teach us not only to love our neighbors, but to love our enemies. He would teach us to turn the other cheek and forgive freely. He, he would teach us that we needed to lead selflessly and love sacrificially and give generously. And then he would be betrayed by a friend, he would be condemned by the temple, and he would be executed by the empire. Once upon a time, not long after that, his followers, they would gather together early on Sunday mornings, and before they would go to work, they would sing songs to Jesus. They would read fragments or a copy of a letter written by one of his disciples if they had one. And they would renew their commitment to one another to love deeply, to give generously, to work diligently, and speak honestly. And some of them, too, would be betrayed by friends, condemned by the temple, persecuted by the empire. But their influence, it spread in ways that people still have difficulty explaining today. Now, why is that important for us? Because now it's our turn in the middle of a very difficult season to write the story that's going to be told of us. See, while we rarely even think of it this way, we are writing a once-upon-a-time story. And for most of us, we, we're consumed by the story of the election. We're consumed by who's going to win the election, what it's going to be like after the election, is everything going to be okay after the election. But there will come a day when people will look back on us and they will tell a story about Christ's followers during this period of time. And I wonder what story they're going to tell. 
I wonder if they're going to tell a story about a group of people who were stewards of this extraordinary message of eternal life. Will it tell a story of a group of people who believed in the possibility of a better life, no matter who was in power because of our relationship with Jesus Christ? I wonder if they'll tell a story of a group of people who were not phased by all the craziness and all the confusion of 2020. Or will they tell a story of people who were paralyzed with fear? because of a pandemic and vicious politics. I wonder, what story will be told of our generation? So for the next couple weeks, we're gonna discuss this question. Because see, one day, how we live, how we respond in this season will determine the story, not just of our generation, but of the next generation as well. Now, to answer this question, we we need to go back to the beginning. And I don't mean the beginning of the world or the beginning of time, but the beginning of the church. We need to go back to the event that kicked off the movement called the church. And really, it set the standard and the tone for what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. Because see, in the beginning, the founder of our faith Well, he was Jesus. It's the person that we sing songs to, we tell our kids stories about, and many of us pray to. In the beginning, though, you need to understand that he was betrayed by a friend. He was unjustly arrested. He was illegally tried and convicted. And then he was flogged for the entertainment of of others. In fact, Mark, who got this information from the Apostle Peter, says that Pilate, the Roman governor, had Jesus flogged in order to satisfy the Jewish religious crowd. It was literally for the pleasure and the entertainment of religious leaders, Jewish religious leaders. Now, many of you, you may have kind of an idea about what flogging means, but if we actually described it to you in detail, it would make you sick to your stomach. Most of you, you would stop listening most likely. It was brutal, it was inhumane, it was a specialized skill that only a few Roman centurions had been trained to do because what they wanted to do is they wanted to inflict maximum amount of suffering and shame on a human without killing the human. And that's what Pilate ordered to be done to Jesus just for the satisfaction of some Jewish religious leaders. And then after that happened, Jesus was taken back to the headquarters where they shoved this crown of thorn into his skull. They put a robe on his back and they mocked the one called the king of the Jews. And can you imagine how painful that robe must have felt on his back as it tore at his raw, even his internal muscles and organs that were exposed. And then they put a staff in his hand. And they knelt before this beaten, bloodied man and they mocked him. And then they stood up and they spit on him and they took the staff and they beat him on the head, driving the crown of thorns deeper and deeper into his skull. And then, as if that wasn't enough, Jesus was given a maximum sentence of crucifixion by the man who said Jesus was innocent. No mercy whatsoever. Now, you need to know something about all that Jesus was going through, especially 
this sentence of crucifixion, and that is this. The Romans didn't invent crucifixion. They perfected it. See, crucifixion wasn't designed to quickly kill a man. No, Roman crucifixion, it was designed to keep a man alive as long as possible to prolong his agony in public. Oftentimes, historians say death, it would take a few days. And the idea was that this would create so much pain and so much shame that the public would see it and they would never be tempted to repeat the crimes of the crucify or to defy the Roman Empire. Now, here's the thing. In, in movies and pictures, you usually see people hanging like several feet above the ground. But that's not how crucifixions work. Instead, the Romans would place someone just a few inches, maybe up to a foot, off the ground. Why did they do that? So that people would gather around the crucified person, and they would look them right in the eye, and and they would see the agony and the pain. And if they chose to mock this criminal all the way to the point of death, they could do that and look them in the face and do it. And Matthew tells us that's exactly what happened to Jesus. In fact, look at it with me in Matthew's account. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 39, it says, Those who passed by, they hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. But it didn't stop there. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, the religious people and the elders, what did they do? They mocked him too. They looked him in the face and they said, He saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. Now let me just remind you of something. Jesus went to the cross. And when Jesus was captured to be taken and tortured and then to be crucified. You need to remember, Jesus was not captured as he was fleeing to Egypt trying to escape arrest and avoid this pain and this shame. He wasn't captured as he fled into the, cave, the desert of Erengeti, into the caves to avoid any kind of religious leader's torture. No. He wasn't even captured at a port city trying to board a ship to escape across the Mediterranean to, to hide out on an island or something. No. Your Savior, my Savior, he walked into Jerusalem on purpose knowing exactly what was about to happen and the fate that awaited him. Think about it. He rode a donkey down Main Street in broad daylight knowing the cross was waiting. Now, here's the problem. When many of us, we think of Jesus, we picture something like this. Listen, this is not your savior. This guy could never do what Jesus did or endure what Jesus endured. Don't miss this. 
Your Savior, he was bold. He was fearless. Your Savior challenged those who misused power. He confronted those who misrepresented God. And he walked right into his moment of death knowing full well exactly what awaited him. He was bold and he was fearless. He was braver than hell and he was tougher than nails. And he was the same guy. He looked to all of those who followed him, and he said this, and Matthew recorded it in Matthew chapter 10. He said these words, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, if you've ever wondered how Jesus could face what he faced with so much boldness, Here is your answer. He says, you have to live or you don't have to live in fear of anyone. This is what he's saying here. Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but not the soul. He says, you you don't have to live in fear of anyone or anything that can only kill your body. See, this is Jesus talking. This is the Jesus who walked straight into Jerusalem, who was bold and fearless. He was tough as nails. He walked his talk. This is the man who walked into Jerusalem knowing full well what awaited him. And he said, listen, you shouldn't fear anything that can only end your life here. Because your life here isn't all there is to life. And, and basically what he's saying is if you are going through life and, and you're going to fear something, you, you need to fear an eternity separated from the one who created you, the one who loves you, and the one who died for you. So if you are part of God's family and you know that you are loved by God and that Jesus is your Lord and Savior and your eternity is no longer a fear for you, then what Jesus is saying is you don't have to fear even when you face fearful things. In fact, let me say it this way. You may want to write this down. Feeling fear is unavoidable. Acting in fear is optional. See, this is what Jesus taught and what he modeled for us. And that is this. Feeling fear is unavoidable. So you shouldn't feel ashamed or embarrassed whenever you feel fear. See, fear is kind of like... The, the natural human response to the unknown, the uncertain, and the unexpected. If you never felt fear, uh, I think we would question whether you were really in touch with reality because there are fearful things out there. Now, here's the thing. It's easy not to fear if you keep your head in the sand or maybe keep your fingers in your ears or kind of deny what's happening around you, but that's not what Jesus did. Feeling fear, don't miss this, it is unavoidable. But acting in fear, that's a completely different matter, and that's what Jesus is telling us. See, acting in fear, that is entirely optional. See, you may feel fear, but as a follower of Jesus, he's saying you shouldn't act in fear. You don't have to let fear drive your decisions or lead your life. Here's the thing. The craziness And the chaos of 2020, it is giving us some valuable information about ourselves. It is showing every one of us 
of what foundation we are building our lives on. See, the truth is, you should always be building your life on something that can never be taken away from you. A foundation that can never be shaken. But here's the thing. Some of us, we are so consumed with anxiety, with fear, with worry, with angry, because what we're realizing is we have built our lives on foundations that can be taken away from us, that can be threatened or taken away. See, we've built our lives on many of us on the security that we can get from our investments and we realize that can be taken away. We've built our lives on the security from our careers and we're realizing that can be taken away or from the security from our businesses or from our family or even our political party. And now those things are all being threatened and our anxiety, it is going through the roof in our culture. And Jesus' point in this statement in Matthew chapter 10 He says, listen, you should build your life on and you should build your life around your heavenly father because here's the reality. He will never leave you. He can never be shaken. So you can choose to follow Jesus and act in faith. See, you can live, Jesus is saying. You can live trusting him. Now, do you know why we can know that? Well, look at what Jesus says in the next verse, verse 29, and he tells us why. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Now, here's what Jesus is saying. In the world of the people that he's talking to, in their world, the sparrow was about as cheap a living being as existed. In other words, it just wasn't worth a whole lot in their minds. In fact, he goes on to say, Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. So Jesus is saying a sparrow in your culture is considered by you to be so worthless that you won't waste your time trying to find one if you lose it or save one that's sick. You'll just like toss it aside and go get another. But even something that's so worthless to you, don't miss this, is valuable to your heavenly Father. Literally, your heavenly Father is paying attention to everything that happens to every single little sparrow. He says it's valuable, even though you feel like it's worthless. He notices. He cares. Oh, and while we're on the subject of caring, Jesus even goes on and he says, and even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Now, some of you, you're not nearly as impressed as you used to be, but you kind of get the point. Jesus says, you want to know how closely God's paying attention to you and your life? He says, he's got, even in real time amount, how many hairs are on your head. That's how much Jesus cares about. He's really saying, I know every detail of your life, everything about you. In fact, We can even make this statement. Go to verse 31. Here's what he goes on to say. He says, because I care about you this much, so don't be afraid. Literally, he's saying, you don't have to act in fear. You you don't have to live in fear. Why? Because you are worth more, don't miss this, than many sparrows. Literally, he's saying, 
if God's paying that much attention to the sparrows, then how much more attention do you think he's paying to you and what's going on in your life? Literally, he's saying, you can feel fear, nothing wrong with that, but you don't have to act in fear because you are his. You're part of his family. You are loved by him deeply. You are thought about very in much detail, and he cares for you. So, so think about it this way. Assuming that you believe in Jesus, how would you act if he were standing right beside you? How would you act if he was living in your home? Or how would you act if he was working in your workplace? Would you be afraid of how you're going to pay your bills? Would you be afraid of getting sick? Would you be afraid of an election and the impact that it would have on your life? See, if God were physically with you, think about that. Would you be lying awake at night worrying about who's going to win? Would you worry so much that it would cause you to be mean to other people, either verbally or on social media? See, if Jesus were physically with you, would you panic or would you be at peace? Would you keep giving generously or would you get greedy? Would you be selfless? Or would you ignore what others need and only look at yourself? See, this is Jesus' point. He's saying, I am with you always. So much so that I could even tell you in this moment how many hairs you have on your head right now. See, you may not be able to see him, but he is with you. So here's the big question. How should we, as Christ followers, respond in the midst of all this chaos and all this confusion in 2020. How should Christ followers respond a few days before the election? Well, here's the thing. We should do what anybody would do who was confident that God was truly with them. See, you got to understand something. This is what allowed Jesus to know what he was facing but not act in fear. It was the secret. It was the strength to his endurance. It was his ability. It was knowing that God was with him, allowed him to endure the betrayal, the arrest, the false trial, the flogging, the mocking, the pain, the shame, and ultimately his own death. See, knowing that God, his father, would always be by his side, it enabled him not only to endure it, but to walk toward it confidently, never turning back, never giving up, never losing hope in the plan. See, Jesus walked forward knowing nothing that the Jewish religious leaders or the Roman soldiers could do to him could compare with the joy and the purpose and the pleasure of God, his Father. And that's what allowed the early followers of Jesus to follow Jesus' example and not act in fear as well. It's what allowed the Apostle Peter... It's what allowed the Apostle John, it's what allowed the Apostle Paul to be thrown into prison and to be beaten and stoned and so many more things by the very people who crucified Jesus and don't miss this and then look at them and say, you want us to do what? We're not going to stop telling people what we've seen and heard and experienced. 
Somebody might say to one of them, but don't you realize they can kill you? But I can just hear the apostle Peter or John or Paul saying, yeah, but they're not the ones who can kill the body and the soul. We feel fear, but we're not going to act in fear. We're living, acting confident that God is with us. Let me tell you something. That's what faith looked like in the early days of the church. And it was even evident in the second century as well. In fact, there was this Roman physician who had the opportunity to go into the arena. Get this. After Christians had been mauled and eaten by our, just, yeah, just destroyed by animals. And he could go in, get this, and he could examine their bodies right before they died. Because there was this rule that they couldn't do that after they died. This was a man who personally witnessed Christian after Christian being captured, thrown into a pit, and then murdered for the amusement of an audience. And what did this pagan doctor observe about these Christians? Here's what he wrote. Fearless of death and the hereafter is something we witnessed in them every day. Wow. So that leads to this question. How should we as Christ followers respond over these next few weeks? And I, I think the answer is we should respond like those before us. We should respond as our Savior and our leader live. We should be fearless and we should be bold. We shouldn't deny that we feel fear, but we should recognize feeling, feeling fear. It is unavoidable. However, acting in fear, it is definitely optional. So our challenge to you is let's be a group of people who choose not to act in fear. Let's be a group of people who choose peace over panic, generosity over greed, and selflessness over selfishness. Let's be a light in the darkness. Let's be a group of people who live confident that God is with us and that God is for us and that we don't have to live afraid and so that leads me to some questions to make this very practical for you if you're a follower of Jesus, and that is this. You might want to write these down. First of all, does your version of following Jesus look like theirs? Or, or is your version of Christianity so twisted and, and so manipulated that it's simply just a self-serving version of Christianity? Is it all about God bless me and God be with me and, and God just... Help me to have more and to be happy. And by the way, God, help my candidate to win. Is your version of Christianity something like this? You know, God is so good because I just had this great quiet time and, and the music during church, it, it just moved me and, and I felt the presence of God and I'm so happy and God is so good. See, if that is your version only, that is not the version Jesus introduced into this world. It's not what the early followers of Jesus died for. Which leads to a second question or asking this question another way. And that is this. Is the way you live worth the, pri worth the price that they paid? Or do you think that the Apostle Peter and the Apostle John and the Apostle Paul and maybe Mary and some of the other ladies who were followers who showed up at that tomb and they were so and they became so convinced that Jesus, who he said he was, would they look at us 
and say, really? <laughs> you're, you're scared of what? You're, you're hoarding up what? You're worried about what? You're upset about that? Listen, feeling fear, it is unavoidable. But acting in fear is definitely optional. See, you can choose, even in this season, whether to live in fear, act in fear, or to walk in faith. So choose wisely. Choose well. Our challenge is that you will choose to follow the example of your Savior. And then when the voice of fear starts whispering to you and, and threatening you, don't listen. Don't let it drive you. Instead, be driven by this, by the confidence that you have, knowing that you follow the one who is tough as nails. You followed the one who stared fear itself and the face and conquered it the one who no matter what fears tells you loves you and is with you and is for you always and here's our prayer when future generations look back and tell our story let them say they did not act in fear but they overcame fear because of their confidence in god and when future generations look back and tell our story, make sure that they are telling a story about our confidence and how we did not act in fear. Let that be our story. That's our challenge. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that we have this incredible opportunity just to pause in, in this season of craziness in all the chaos, and God, in this season where feeling fear is unavoidable, but to be reminded that acting in fear is optional. I pray that today that we will move forward with the same confidence that our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, had. The confidence that, God, you're with us. You see what's going on in our world. You care about even the very details of our being. God, you've got us today. You've got us tomorrow. And you have us the next day. God, I just pray that you help us to live and walk in that confidence. And may it be the story that the next generation tells of our generation as we feel fear. But we don't act in fear because we are confident that you're with us. We thank you for your presence through the person of the Holy Spirit. And we walk forward in your power in Jesus' name. Amen.